最前沿的科学研究。And we are back with a new episode of Science Rehashed, the podcast where we offer a window into life science research to anyone in the world with an internet connection. Here's Layla, and here is Mehdi, your Science Rehashed co-hosts. Thousand years ago, Homo sapiens in Africa started behaving in ways that seem very human. They made new kinds of stone tools and began transporting raw materials up to 250 miles, likely through trade networks. 50,000 years ago, a new change happened. New types of stone and bone tools became common, and people began fashioning and exchanging ostrich eggshell beads, suggesting an explosion of art. What caused this change has been a long-standing archaeological mystery. Why would certain tools and behaviors suddenly become widespread, and is this change related to how people interacted? Archaeologists reconstruct human behavior in the past mainly using things that people left behind. However, it's hard to study how populations change only from the archaeological record. This is why ancient DNA has revolutionized our way of studying the past. Allowing us to explore human diversity in different places and times, and understand what factors shaped it. We have interviewed Dr. Mary E. Prendergast, assistant professor of anthropology at Rice University and an expert on the earliest origins and spread of pastoralism in Kenya and Tanzania. In her recent work published in Nature, Dr. Prendergast and her team were able to use ancient DNA from individuals who lived between 18,000 and 400 years ago to explore how people interacted as far back as the last 80,000 to 50,000 years. This allowed them to investigate for the first time ever whether demographic change played a role in this transition. We're so thrilled to have you here. So,、um, as is our tradition, we'd love to have you introduce yourself. Okay, great. So, I'm Mary Prendergast. I'm an associate professor of anthropology、um, at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and I'm an archaeologist.、Um, so, my, my training is really in the humanities and social sciences,、um, and this. Paper that we'll be talking about is the product of interdisciplinary research that I've started doing in the last few years, principally with David Reich at Harvard on ancient DNA and understanding the human past in Africa, and that's where I've spent my last fifteen years of my career working. And can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in these fields of research? Well, going back now twenty years, probably、um, I was an undergraduate. You know I, what often happens? I think is you have one great professor who inspires you to study something.、Uh, for me, it was Martha Sharp Jakowski at Brown University.、Um, Martha Jakowski, 
just had built up this amazing legacy of, of teaching students in archaeology at Brown where I was an undergraduate. And it, I just, you know, took one class and fell in love. And I went on a few fields projects and loved the experience of traveling and meeting new people and immersing myself in different places and cultures and learning new languages. So that really was sort of the, the entry point. And then when I did my PhD at Harvard, I, I became interested in African archaeology. And this is an area that's really under-researched, especially when it comes to studies of the African past after the emergence of Homo sapiens. So I became really interested in the recent African past and just found a community of people that I really enjoyed working with in Tanzania and Kenya, um, more recently in Zambia, and, and my career sort of took off from there. How did you end up focusing on that area? Well, so I fell in love with the study of animal bones. If you do it, it's just really fun. And it's a challenge and every piece is a puzzle. You pick up a tiny fragment of like a 5,000 year old animal bone and you have to figure out like, what is this? It's the proximal humerus of a cow or whatever. So I enjoyed that sort of intellectual and also kind of very physical challenge of figuring out how to study animal bones. And then in terms of the interesting questions you can ask with that tool, there's plenty of them. So you can look at the origins of foraging societies. So people hunted and fished for a living. And that's quite a lot of what I did as part of my PhD. And then during my PhD research, even though my aim was actually to understand people who lived primarily as fishers, I wound up happening upon a lot of sites related to the earliest pastoralists in East Africa. And pastoralism, which is livestock herding, right, is one of the primary ways that people thrive, especially in marginal drylands environments in much of Africa today. And so I started working with other archaeologists who are really interested in pastoralism. A close friend of mine, Kate Grillo at the University of Florida, is an expert in Eastern African pastoralism. And we kind of began that project. And actually, that is kind of how I wound up in this ancient DNA world, is I had very, you know, sort of concrete questions about the spread of pastoralism and about the impacts of that spread on indigenous hunter-gatherers in East Africa that led me to doing this ancient DNA work. Amazing. That, like, what a cool confluence of areas and things that you're interested in. And I never thought about the physical challenges of literally picking up a bone and then having to think of painting this whole picture just from a tiny bone. That, that's absolutely incredible. One last question before we get into the meat of your paper. How much of your time is spent on field research? And what about field research do you enjoy the most? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, very little of my time is spent in the field these days, especially with the pandemic. Obviously, that's had a huge impact on field work everywhere. And I, one thing I always like to remind people is that for every day you spend in the field, on average, you'll spend at least 30 days curating whatever you've excavated, studying it, getting it into a state where it could be published. And actually, we're in the midst of what we call a curation crisis in archaeology, where we excavate a lot of material that we then don't have time to properly curate in museums or other collections and study and publish. So archaeology is really destructive, right? When you excavate a site, you're destroying that site. You're removing items from their context. And so if you're not then going to be able to publish what you find, then how is that different from looting an archaeological site? You know, we have to provide that information. So I spend at most, going back to your original question, a month every couple of years doing excavation. And much of what I do is actually collections research in museums, analysis of existing data sets, publishing and trying to communicate to the public our findings and very, very minimal field work. Wow. An incredible thing to think about. 
Moving on to the paper. So in your recent paper, Ancient DNA and Deep Population Structure in Sub-Saharan African Foragers, which was published in Nature in February, you presented this new genome-wide ancient DNA data and radiocarbon dates from three late Pleistocene and three early to middle Holocene individuals. And so you had these really cool findings about changes in regional and continental scale population structures in this like near recent ancient history, right? About 5,000 years ago. And so uh, first I wanted to ask a little bit about ancient DNA. You alluded to this collaboration that you've had with David Reich. Can you tell us a little bit about this ancient DNA revolution and how it's like changed your work and what you do in the field? I'm always really careful when I talk about this to, to preface it with saying I'm not a geneticist, but as an archaeologist who works really closely with geneticists, I mean, I think, you know, we've been witnessing a real sea change in both of our fields, right? Both on the archaeology and genetics side as we learn how to work together. So archaeologists and other people who study the past, historians, some anthropologists, we've been using DNA as one line of evidence for understanding human population history for decades. And so what really changed things was the ability to access ancient DNA in archaeological human skeletons. And this is something that's really only been around for a little over a decade. And in Africa, the first whole genome that was published um, was only in 2015. And even today, after there's been a number of papers and a flurry of research, there are still, I think if you look at the numbers now, less than 1% of published ancient genomes come from the African continent. And if what has enabled us to, under, to sequence human genomes in the first place are a number of methodological advances. In particular, the discovery of the petrus portion of the temporal bone in your skull. So this is kind of a very dense part of your skull behind your ear. Um, preserves up to 100 times more endogenous ancient DNA than other parts of the human skeleton. So that discovery was really important for simply sampling a part of the skeleton that was more likely to produce ancient DNA. So it's not just that the bone survives better, it's that the way that it survives preserves the DNA a little bit better. Yes, exactly. It's a highly dense bone, resistant to degradation. It's effectively protecting DNA. And it preserves pretty well too. So we tend to find it in archaeological human skeletal collections. However, each person only has two in their body and each archaeological skeleton will have a maximum of two. So as this discovery was made, there was also a lot of concern raised by archaeologists and others about being very judicious in how we sample because we don't know what questions will be asked 30, 40 years from now with new methods and we don't want to destroy these really important and irreplaceable human skeletal collections, right? These are human beings. But so there was that discovery and there were some new advances in sequencing technology that simply made it faster and cheaper to sequence uh, whole genomes from ancient human remains. And the field has really taken off in the last decade. And I think it's also the modeling too, if I'm remembering correctly from the little bit of ancient DNA reading that I've done, it's not just like sequencing a blood sample from an alive human today, right? There's UV changes or degradation, right? That can mask what bases truly are, right? So I think there was also a lot of like modeling work to reconstruct the DNA. So you've raised an important question, which is how do we know ancient DNA is truly ancient DNA and not the result of contamination by present day people handling remains? And so you're right. There's been a lot of advances too in authenticating ancient DNA. And also, yes, as you mentioned modeling, I should say bioinformatics is a huge part of ancient DNA research. And again, this is not my wheelhouse at all. I'm an archaeologist, but it's critical that we work with 
people who have a very, very good handle on bioinformatics, right? So this is a truly interdisciplinary field. I'm actually very interested to learn more about the ancient DNA authenticity. Can you talk more about how time and environment affect ancient DNA preservation and what tools are used to assess these ancient DNA authenticity? Yes, there is a tool that population geneticists now use to detect contamination, basically because, as I understand it, sort of at the end of some of these strands, there's a change in base pairs. And if, if it falls into certain patterns of change, you can say, oh, that, you know, that's what we expect. We expect a degree of degradation. We see this degradation. That's actually a good thing. That's telling us our DNA is authentic. And if you're not seeing those indicators of degradation, then you should be pretty suspicious. So I, I, I'm not using the technical terms here because I'm not a geneticist, but there are these tools to detect degradation and thereby authenticate ancient DNA. And that's really important because, as you said, ancient DNA degrades in especially tropical climates where you have heat, you have humidity, where you get the best DNA preservation is in a really stable, cool, dry environment. So, you know, we do have human DNA or, or hominin DNA, I should say, from an earlier human ancestor, 430,000 years ago. Fascinating. How far can you go in the past and still have authentic ancient DNA? The one million year barrier was broken. I believe it was just this past summer for million year old faunal DNA from an animal. And then for human or hominin DNA, it's 430,000 years ago. And that's at Cima los Huesos and Atapuerca in Spain. And that's, that's an amazing finding. And there are similarly quite early ancient uh, DNA studies from humans who lived in Europe, especially in the late Pleistocene again, so maybe 40-something thousand years ago. We have some early Homo sapiens DNA from about 45,000 years ago from Eastern Europe. And that's amazing. But the reason it's possible is because, again, you have these quite stable relatively temperate, cool, dry cave environments. We don't often have that good fortune in most of Africa. Most of the continent lies in the tropics. And so DNA degrades. And that's why you have to be extra careful to authenticate your results and make sure you're not getting modern contamination. This is really interesting. We're going to take a quick break before we talk a little bit more about your paper. Hi, listeners. I hope you are enjoying our episodes. If you want to tell us your thoughts, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review to let us know what you think about Sciencely Hashed. Listeners, if you also want to ask questions during our next episodes, don't forget to post them on Twitter at Science Rehashed on one of our next interview tweets. Before moving on to the paper, I would like to have you define a few specific terms that our listeners might not be familiar with. The first is calibrated years before present, a term that you use often in the paper. Could you explain what that means? Sure. Oh, radiocarbon. Archaeologists love talking about radiocarbon. So something that archaeologists discovered more, you know, a half century or more ago at this point is that radiocarbon dates, so when you generate a date from a organic sample of some kind, wood, charcoal, hair, skin, bone, etc. you have to calibrate it to account um, for fluctuations in, in atmospheric carbon. And so when you get a date from a lab, you need to calibrate it against a pretty well-established at this point calibration curve 
And what we get is not a year, but a range. And that's a really important thing to emphasize because if I say this person lived between, I'm just making up numbers here, 6,600 and 6,400 years ago calibrated, that's a, what did I say? 200 year range. Okay. So that person could have lived at any point in that range. And depending on what time frame you're studying, 200 years can be a really important difference, you know? So um, I do like to emphasize that our dates are ranges and that there are actually pretty sophisticated methods these days, especially using Bayesian statistics. Um, if you have a large number of radiocarbon dates to try to sort of model what are the most likely timeframes for the particular site or group of people or whatever, you know, assemblage you're studying. Very interesting. The second term I would like you to define is client, a term you also use a lot in the paper and that I'm sure we will talk about very soon. So basically a gradient of ancestry. So if you look at a principal components analysis, right? So you basically look at this plane of, of data points, right? Where each data point is an individual person. There is a gradient uh, along which those people lie in PCA space, right? Principal components analysis space. So that's what I mean by client, right? Is we're detecting kind of how these different individuals as data points on a graph fall within different poles. So now moving on to finally your paper, I'd love to hear a little bit about the conception of it. Like when you started the study, what were you trying to answer? What were the main questions that gave rise to it? And what do you think are the most important or exciting results to you? So what, one thing that really was driving us here is that there is a huge change across much of Africa beginning about 5,000 years ago, which is the shift from hunting and gathering and fishing to what we often call food production, right? So farming, livestock herding, and that change also was accompanied by major demographic change. So people were moving with their livestock and with crops and with new languages and new ideas to the point where today, if you look at sort of a genetic map, if you will, of Africa, you will see, for example, extremely widespread ancestry related to people who live and lived in Western Africa. So that's just one example of a way in which there's been this huge demographic change so that if you're only analyzing the DNA of people alive today, um, you may not get the full story because there are these lineages which are either no longer present in people alive today or are so minimally present, they might not be detected in a sample of people in a present day DNA study. So we were really interested in accessing that moment before the spread of food production. And then what we're trying to also do is reconstruct deep population history. And we're interested in knowing what happened as our species sort of moved across the continent, began you know, doing different things behaviorally, and ultimately spread around the world. So just to quickly recap, the first thing you wanted to do in this study was to access that window of time before food production. How did you address this first goal? And we did so by sampling the skeletal remains of six people who had lived between 18,000 and 5,000 years ago. Um, and I should say that 18,000 number is pretty amazing because prior to our work, South of the Sahara, the earliest published ancient DNA was from a person who had lived in Malawi about 9,000 years ago. And now we've doubled that time depth. And that's 
important again because we're trying to access this time frame before the spread of food production. It also just methodologically is pretty amazing. The ancient DNA preserves in the tropics from that long ago. Wow, this is really amazing. And the second thing you did was to compare the ancient DNA of these individuals to the published genome from other people who lived in Africa over the last 5,000 years. What were the results of this second part of the study? So we actually were able to show that all of the individuals in our study, so all of the ancient foragers we studied, both the newly sequenced genomes and the previously published genomes, all of those people can trace their ancestry to basically three major groups or lineages, if you will, which diverged a very long time ago from one another, like potentially more than 200,000 years ago. And that's the three-way climb that you describe in your paper, right? Which was differing from the two, like the parsimonious explanation without this ancient DNA, which was the two-way. Yeah. So Pontus Skoglund and colleagues in 2017 had described this two-way climb between Eastern and Southern Africa. And actually that work has been incredibly important and influential on ours. And what we were showing with especially some of the new newly sequenced individuals is there's also this really important Central African um, component that, that previously wasn't as appreciated because we couldn't see it as well. And so what we showed is that there's these three components of ancestry, broadly speaking, Eastern, Southern, and Central African ancestry that are um, coming together in individuals who lived in present-day Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, and Zambia. And what that's telling us is that the ancestors of the people whose genomes we studied in our paper we're connecting with each other across pretty long distances. You know, I mean, I guess I often like to sort of underscore to people who are not working in Africa, these distances are huge. The environmental barriers as well, you know, tropical forests, changes in altitude, uh, major lake basins are huge. And, and of course, this is happening over multi-millennial timescales, but you have people who are moving and connecting with each other in different ways, bringing together people whose ancestors had long been separated, right, for tens of millennia. And so as an archaeologist, I look at that and I'm like, wow, people are moving around and connecting with each other and having babies together, right? Obviously, this is how we see this kind produced in new ways. How does that line up to the archaeological record? And, and what's amazing is it really does in this particular case, because in around 50,000 years ago, which is the time frame in which we see all this moving and mixing, we also have a lot of archaeological evidence for people connecting with each other in new ways. Like in what way, for example? We start to see a real explosion in self-expression, at least in ways that we can detect archaeologically. So Things like ostrich eggshell beads, which are these beautiful little beads made from the shells of, of ostrich eggs. They've existed in Africa for far longer than 50,000 years, um, but they become especially widespread around 50,000 years ago. And so what's exciting for me as an archaeologist is the ways in which that body of evidence lines up with this very broad scale genetic body of evidence that people are connecting with each other in different ways from how it was in the past bringing together these very diverged lineages. And then the other thing that's pretty cool is that our study also shows that after about 20,000 years ago, that long-range movement has basically stopped. People are living more locally. They're having babies with people who live right by them, sort of especially in, in the data from Jessica Thompson's excavations in Malawi, which form an important part of this paper. We see the sort of hyper-local signal suggesting people are marrying and having kids with the people right around them. This is really cool to me. 
I would have thought that long distance movement was very rare at that time and so genetic diversity, but this seems not to be the case. So can we still use geographical proximity as an indicator of genetic diversity? Well, things get complicated after the spread of food production, right? When we start to see people living in very close geographic proximity to each other, but maintaining social boundaries. So is this due mainly to social boundaries? Well, I think it, it is people who have different life ways, sometimes have social rules about appropriate marriage choices um, that then structure how we have kids together. And that's not to say, I mean, there's actually lots of examples of people crossing those boundaries. And that is why today, Sandawe, for example, have uh, ancestry profiles that show a really complicated history of people with pretty widely divergent ancestries having children together. Nevertheless, you know, it's true that, that social boundaries matter. And sometimes we see that they're restricting the extent to which we have kids together. Um, and so a question we have is like, what does that look like in the past? And our data show is that, for example, around 3,000 years ago in Tanzania, you have people who are coming into the region for the first time with very, very different genetic lineages. They are livestock herders. Their ancestors lived in northeastern Africa, like, you know, present day Egypt, Sudan, etc. And they are having kids with indigenous hunter-gatherers whose ancestors had probably lived in Tanzania for tens of millennia. So that, that does happen. And then as an archaeologist and anthropologist, my question is, wow, what does that look like socially? And I was thinking, regarding these long-distance migrations, could environmental conditions have shaped these movements? This is a really great question. So one thing we know is that, you know, around this time frame that we're studying in the late Pleistocene, the late, late Pleistocene, so the late Pleistocene is like a, the last 125,000 years until about 12,000 years ago. So we're kind of studying the middle of that period. And we know there's dramatic environmental change, right? Um, you know, there's cool and dry periods, which means that grasslands may be opening up and forests might be shrinking. Lake Victoria fully desiccated um, at various points in its history game, like so wild animals would have changed their migratory patterns as grasslands open up or close down, um, as forests expand and contract. People, of course, often follow game because they're hunters, right? So I think that there's a lot of really interesting data sets that we could bring into the next stage of this work that are paleo-environmental data sets, which are pretty good in many parts of Africa, right, for reconstructing environmental histories. And then things like faunal data sets, so animal bone remains, um, which is my wheelhouse, to look at how hunting patterns have changed. And, and a lot of this work is being done actively by archaeologists. And what we need to do is start to bring these data sets into closer collaboration with each other. And actually, there's a lot of work being done on this right now and looking at potential refugia, so places where people may have hung out during climatically aggressive periods. So, you know, coastal tropical forests, for example, may have been particularly attractive. And trying to see the extent to which we can then line up our pretty coarse, broad-scale data for long-range human population movements with what is often much more localized data about the environment. Are there things that we can learn from this ancient data about ecological impacts of human and animal activities or how humans have dealt with, you know, minor climate change? I don't think we're quite there yet in the ancient DNA world. 
archaeologists have long been asking what we can learn about past peoples in terms of resilience to climate threats. A lot of really great work is being done on this in African pastoralism, for example, because again, as I mentioned earlier, pastoralism is this key in life way that we know sustains people in dry lands where they often live off of the secondary products of their livestock. So especially milk and dairy products like ghee um, that can survive at high temperatures for long periods of time. And so archaeologists have been doing a lot of work on studying ancient forms of resilience um, with an eye towards you know, influencing hopefully some policy uh, in, in the present day where, you know, we want to really support livestock herders um, and not see their life way as a threat to the environment so much as a sustainable life way. And where ancient DNA, I think, could play a role in that particular question, right, just as one example, is that we, we did try to look for evidence of lactase persistence in an earlier paper that I worked on in 2019. And I think as we start to understand how that genetic adaptation to dairying as a key life way emerged and spread around Africa, we will be able to say something about resilience to climate change in the past. So yeah, I do think ancient DNA can say something of the persistence of groups of people whose genomes, again, would be largely invisible in the people living in those areas today. Hi, listeners. If you're enjoying Science Rehashed, let us know by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate our show on Spotify by tapping the three dots next to the following button and then tapping Rate Show. This is also a great time to hit follow if you're not following already. I have another related environmental question. How do you think current environmental change are going to impact archaeology studies? Yes. One thing that I think we are quickly finding out is that global warming is going to lead to the destruction of archaeological sites. That's already happening at a, at a pretty clear pace, whether it's coastal flooding or the melting of glaciers, which have preserved archaeological sites intact in ice for tens of thousands of years in some cases. In some cases, archaeologists are sort of seeing this as an opportunity to learn something new about sites or individual animals or human skeletons that were trapped in ice for many years. On the other hand, it's an incredible loss planet of, of our shared heritage. So it's a, it's a really serious issue. And do you believe the Industrial Revolution will also have an impact? Let's say a thousand years from now. That's a really good question. It's not one I've thought about before, actually. Um, because I, I, don't, I don't know the answer and it's a little outside of my field, but you're getting me to think about one thing which is that we do know that, for example, the atomic bomb in World War II had a tremendous effect on the atmosphere that needs to be accounted for if you're looking at very recent radiocarbon dates, for example. So certainly that has had a huge impact and we are ejecting enormous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. So it's a great question whether or not archaeologists 3,000 years from now are going to be able to study the things that we would like them to be able to study uh, because of what we're doing to our own planet. And, and this sort of brings in a broader topic that, that many of us are studying, which is this time frame we call the Anthropocene, right? The era of humans. There's a lot of debate as to when that begins and how you, whether you're detecting it as a stratigraphic boundary in the geological record or through um, less geologically visible but important archaeological signals. But there is no doubt that we are changing our planet irrevocably in ways that future archaeologists are probably going to look back at 
and lament. And they will have a pretty clear stratigraphic boundary in the record for seeing what we've done here. I, I don't know if we'll still be around to study ourselves, quite frankly. That's kind of a depressing <laughs> note, uh, perhaps on which to, to finish my answer to that. But I think there, there's pretty serious implications of what we're doing. And there's a real human cost. Yeah, that's definitely something we should all reflect more on. But now I want to ask a different kind of question. Is there anything that we can learn also about human health from these kind of archaeological information? People have tried to detect, and I think we'll continue to try to detect, important genetic variations that we know have relevance for present-day human health. So like the Duffy allele is a classic example of this, right? This is connected to malaria. We can look at things like lactase persistence, the ability to digest lactose into adulthood beyond weaning, right? There's lots of things that we can begin to investigate that reflect relatively recent human adaptation to either new threats, be it, you know, malaria, right? Um, or um, new diets, right? Involving dairying that we have had limited success doing so far with ancient DNA. But Again, that's largely about the fact that the samples are so few in number. That is absolutely fascinating. We've got one more question for you. What are the next questions you'd like to answer using this combination of ancient DNA and archaeological practices? Yeah, so I'm really excited about what we're we're hopefully going to be doing next. I've been working with scholars in Zambia. Um, in fact, one of them is a graduate student here at Rice University working with me, Maggie Katongo, who's a, a curator at the Livingstone Museum, and with a number of other scholars who've worked in Zambia and elsewhere to look at the spread of farming during the Iron Age, which again is an area that we haven't really, um, we do understand somewhat from present day genomes of present day people. But I think we don't really have a lot of great resolution on that yet. And we have been mostly looking at DNA from people alive today. And what we really want to do is try to understand how something that is often painted with a very broad brush, right? As I mentioned earlier, we sometimes erroneously equate the spreads of languages, genes, and life ways as if they're all moving in tandem. And what we really want to do is tease that out a bit and say, well, hey, if we focus on one particular place, can we actually see that the movements of genes, languages, and lifeways is, is actually pretty different? So I'm really excited about that particular paper. And then just more broadly, I think the field is really moving in a positive direction in terms of thinking about ethical sampling, how we engage with stakeholders. Elizabeth Sachuk and another collaborator of ours, Kendra Sirak, who's at Harvard, have been working together to develop a workshop in Nairobi, Kenya, aimed at bringing together scholars from across the African continent who are interested in ancient DNA and archaeology, but might not have had the opportunity to travel to conferences or laboratories in the global north because of the inequalities we're all very familiar with in the sciences, and to get people together to do workshops and trainings aimed at increasing the number of African scholars who are doing this research. So that, that's the other direction, broader direction I see this field going, and I'm really excited about that. I know we said that was the last question, but I have a very <laughs> last, last question. We live in a very unique time where we see a lot of fast-paced advances in AI, bioinformatics, and data science. How do you think these advancements will change your research in the near future? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I you know, to some extent, because you mentioned sort of the, the speed and rapid development of this, and there's always this sort of pushback against that in the archaeological community where we advocate for slow science. 
because often, you know, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, what we do is destructive. Um, if you're causing destruction to an archaeological site or human remains, you want to proceed with caution. At the same time, as you say, the field is really speeding up. And I, I guess one thing that I think we've all learned through the pandemic is the ways in which technology can enable us to work together in new ways. To It's offered opportunities for workshops and trainings to be conducted virtually that greatly increase access for African scholars all of a sudden and reduce carbon footprints because we don't have people flying all over the world for a three-day conference. You know, there's ways in which we're learning to work together and share information and collaborate that we didn't have before. And although many of these technologies predate the pandemic, the pandemic gave us the kick we needed to um, start working together in these different ways and to share data with, with stakeholders in new ways. So one thing that is incredibly important is returning results to the communities in which you work. African scholars with you know, complete justification often say a lot of this work is being done in a helicopter or parachute format where Global North scientists are coming in, taking samples, publishing data without very serious engagement or capacity building. And that has to change. And it, it is changing. H3 Africa, Human Heredity and Health in Africa is a great example of this, right, of African geneticists um, working to build capacity on the continent. And I think that a lot of the technologies we have now are making it easier to forge those connections between the global north and global south. And in order to, for example, share your data and your results with curators at the museum where you've been working on an ancient DNA project no longer requires somebody flying. It simply requires the time to connect across our you know, existing network. So it, it really, it is changing things in a, in a way that I think is, is quite positive. This is wonderful to hear. Thank you, Dr. Prendergast, for being with us for this Science Rehash episode today. Yes, thank you so much. That was amazing. I absolutely love archaeology and human history. Thank you so much. This was a really great. That was so awesome. We don't often think about our past as a species. And this definitely helped me realize how much there still is to learn from ancient individuals, especially on the African continent, which is so understudied in this field. Scientists really have only just begun to understand human diversity, past and present. Absolutely, Leila. This episode was not only a trip back in time, but also into the future. It made me reflect on the interplay between environment, climate change, and humans and the positive and negative effects of our intervention on our planet. A wonderful chance for all of us to reflect more on these topics. I love how I learn new things in each of our interviews. Speaking of which, Mehdi, what is our next interview about? Oh, yes. Thank you for reminding me, Leila. Our next episode will be with Dr. Mech Alarath, an expert of maternal fetal medicine. Listeners, join us for an interesting discussion about how RNA profiles can be used to detect health and disease in pregnancy. Are you left with more thoughts or questions after listening to a Science Rehash episode? Join us on Twitter at Science Rehashed and leave your comments, thoughts, questions, etc. on the episode Twitter thread to rehash this episode using hashtag SREpisodeRehashed. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed. This episode was written by Kiara Maffei, edited by Vesna Ilieska, and mixed by Aaron Troutman. The cover art for this episode was created by our creative director, Emma Brand. We would also like to thank the whole team of Science Rehashed. <laughs>